1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Redis. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on the show are my own and not that of my present or past employers, and I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government. So the numbers are in, and what a response to last week's show. I mean, not only in terms of the numbers, but, you know, the listeners, the feedback, fantastic. The feedback on the topic of women in cybersecurity brought out the passion in people about cybersecurity and and how they think about it around the world. I mean, the importance of attracting more women into the cybersecurity space and building a formidable workforce that protects our systems, our data, our infrastructures. I mean, it was just refreshing. It was a breath of fresh air to see people coming together to solve this problem and opine on what solutions they think might work. So Dr. Shelley is clearly a very well-respected cybersecurity professional on more than one continent, and she drew a crowd. So thank you all for listening to the show. Thank you for your feedback, and thank you for all your kind words of support. It was a fabulous week. We really pride ourselves at Task Force 7 in having the deepest relationships with the best information. And we're going to keep it coming for you. We're just getting started. We have the goal of becoming the number one business talk radio show on the planet. So let's see if we can get there together. Lots to talk about on today's show. But before I go any further, I want to remind our listeners that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The news professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest interesting news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. Again, to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Today, we're gonna to be focusing on the talent crisis again for the first segment of the show because people are really interested in this topic. I mean, like I said, I got a lot of attention last week and the talent crisis is introducing more and more risk into our environments every day. And this is a problem that many people are passionate about because we have to do something about it if we're gonna be successful. We just can't ignore it, we can't ignore it. This is a must win battle for cybersecurity professionals. We can't allow the deficit of cybersecurity personnel to continue to grow and to get larger and larger over the next few years, as it is most definitely predicted to do so. And collectively, together, we have to have an organized response that includes a multi-pronged solution to solve this problem. So for the second segment of the show, we're going to continue our discussion about the Uber Breach. And I I touched on it upon it last week, and and you're not going to want to miss what I have to say about this situation. I mean, there are some crazy reports circulating around the news media about what's going on over there at Uber. I mean, some of this stuff is just out of control. I mean, when you hear what I have to say, it's going to make you think twice about getting into an Uber car anytime soon. I can tell you that. And for the third segment of the show, I want to talk about some other breaking cybersecurity news, including an update on the crisis in Qatar, started by the hack of the Qatar National News Agency, a report on the indictment of an Iranian national for the hack over at HBO, and the U.K. joins the U.S. in banning Kaspersky software for use in departments responsible for national security. I mean, what's the deal with Kaspersky? All that and more coming up in in the second and third segments of tonight's show. So don't go away. You don't want to miss it. Headlines around the world about the cybersecurity talent crisis have been riveting our industry for over 12 months and, and even longer, 24 months in some cases. As one cybersecurity executive after another expresses their concern with the lack of talent available in the world's fastest growing job market. So how bad is the crisis, you ask? Well, let's get to the facts. Currently, in 2017, the U.S. employs nearly 780,000 people in the cybersecurity space. In 2016, the year before, the U.S. employed a total of 6.7 million people in technology jobs. Now, there are, of course, tens of millions of technology jobs globally, and this is important to know because the more technology jobs there are implementing innovative and disruptive technologies into our environments, to drive revenue streams that impact P&L, the more cybersecurity jobs that are going to be needed to secure those technologies to make sure they are driving business strategies that are profitable. So cybersecurity is growing 12 times faster than any other job market in the United States. There is currently an estimated six million cybersecurity professionals worldwide. Recent estimates say that India alone will need 1 million additional cybersecurity professionals by 2020 to meet the demands of its rapidly growing economy. That's one country, folks. One country. One million jobs more to secure their technologies. There are 350,000 cybersecurity jobs open in the U.S. because there is currently no talent to fill them. There are 1 million jobs vacant worldwide for the same reasons. It's expected that there will be 2 million jobs vacant by 2019 and 3.5 million jobs vacant by 2021. So things aren't getting any better. In fact, they're getting a lot worse. Every year, 40,000 jobs for information security analysts go unfilled. That's an additional posted 40,000 jobs that no one's hired for. There are 2,500 CISO jobs vacant right now in the United States. And this is one of the most telling statistics in the cybersecurity crisis. For every 10 cybersecurity job ads that appear on career sites, only seven people even click on the ads, let alone apply for the position. I mean, that's a staggering statistic. There are jobs posted for people to get, further their careers, support themselves. People are out there who can provide for their families, improve their quality of life. No one's applying for these opportunities. Now this begs the question, why aren't people applying for these positions? Well, one would assume that they don't have the skill sets to perform the requisite job functions and requirements. Nothing else really makes sense, especially when this is happening on a global scale and on a consistent basis, and it's getting worse. So why is all this important, you may ask? Why should anyone care? Someone out there, probably thinking to themselves. Because cybersecurity programs are essential to protecting critical infrastructures that support and facilitate our freedoms, our liberties, and our way of life. This is no exaggeration, okay? This is not drama radio here. How many political leaders with the highest security clearances, holding the highest positions in our intelligence and security agencies, in the know about the threats that exist to our country and to our national security, have come forward time and time again to tell us that the threat that exists to our electrical grids, our transportation systems, our telecommunications infrastructure, our financial institutions, is very, very real. It's very real. Let's check out some more facts. 29% of breached organizations lost revenue out of their operations. So no talent to protect your network and your data equals more risk introduced into your organization that has real consequences to your P&L. The global cybersecurity spend is expected to grow from 120 billion in 2016 to 200 billion in 2020. 200 billion. Billion. Where are all the cybersecurity professionals who are expected to run and implement and administer all of this security technology? I mean, where are they? I got news for everybody. The technology's not gonna run itself. There's no magic button to push that is gonna solve our problems. Process is king. And human beings write, implement, and execute and process. Cybercrime is expected to cost the world $6 trillion by 2021, up from $3 trillion in 2015. It's predicted to double. In other words, we're not only getting our asses kicked by the criminals, costing American consumers more an interest in interest and fees to pay for this cybercrime, which make no mistake about it, it's baked into every budget in every Fortune 500 company in the United States. Every company in the Fortune 500 has a line item for fraud which they then pass on to their customers and their clients. And if that isn't resonating with you, you need to throw some ice water on your face and wake up because they're taking it from us, man. They're taking it from us, and we're letting them do it. Last year, CybersecurityVentures.com predicted that this increase in cybercrime from $3 trillion to $6 trillion annually by 2021 represents the greatest transfer of economic wealth in human history. It also puts at risk the incentives that people have for innovation and investment in in disruptive technologies, especially in the cybersecurity space. And it will be more profitable for criminals and enemies of the United States than the global trade of all, all major illegal drugs combined. But wait, there's more. The criminals are taking the money they steal from everyday hard-working Americans and great citizens of other free nations, and then they are reinvesting this illicit gotten gains in anti-American and anti-Western interests. Whether that's creating counterfeit money to devaluate our currencies, investing in major political operations on social media to influence American elections, stealing intellectual property from our companies, Compromising military plans and secrets so they can build technologies and weapons to kill our boys on the front lines. Or investing in terrorist operations that aim to kill free-loving people and terrorize our societies. So yeah, it's important to fix this problem. And it's important to stop this trend before it gets any worse. It's gonna take a collective effort here to win. And we must win. Drastic situations require drastic action. So if you're wondering, Where I'm getting some of this information, well, aside from cybersecurity being my business for 16 years and being connected to some of the most prolific cybersecurity executives in the world, who are all singing in unison that we have a major cybersecurity talent problem, a lot of them have appeared on this show. For the love of God, find a Google search bar and type in, search, uh, type in a search on cybersecurity talent crisis. You'll get things like this. May 4th, 2017, the Harvard Business Review headline, cybersecurity has a serious talent crisis. Posted now on monster.com, headline, cybersecurity suffers from a talent shortage. June 6th, 2017, CSO Online Magazine, headline, Cybersecurity labor crunch to hit 3.5 million unfilled jobs by 2021. June 23rd, 2017, Gartner.com, headline, Confront the Cybersecurity Talent Shortage. September 16th, 2017, CybersecurityIntelligence.com, headline, the Cybersecurity Talent Shortage, Zero Unemployment and No Unicorns. January 17, 2017, Indeed.com, headline, The Cybersecurity Skills Gap. Check out the Indeed blog. August 1st, 2016, InformationWeek.com, headline, Cybersecurity Skills Shortage Leaves Companies Vulnerable. Look, I could go on and on, on and on, dozens and dozens of these articles and in, 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 in news feeds. And I know, I know, there are people out there in denial There are people out there right now who refuse to acknowledge the crisis that we're dealing with. It just isn't happening in their mind. It's all fiction. Well, let me educate you. Being able to pay for talent and acquire the talent from an organization standpoint may mean that you have temporarily mitigated your inability to attract talent as it pertains to your company's needs. But that does not negate the worldwide crisis in acquiring cybersecurity talent across the entire industry that protects our critical infrastructures. And some companies being more successful at acquiring talent is the natural order of things. It doesn't mitigate or represent the current climate in the entire cybersecurity sector. And check out the indiatimes.com blogs and read about it there. Forge.com. CybersecurityVentures.com, TechGig.com, BankInfoSecurity.com, TheHerjavecGroup.com, Cybensolutions.com. I mean, are all these people wrong? Are all these media outlets, and I I didn't even begin to scratch the surface here. some of this stuff off the top of my head. And, And are all the cybersecurity executives quoted in these reports From the most prolific CISOs in the country to the top government authorities in the technology and cybersecurity space, all screaming from the hilltops that we have a problem. Are they all wrong? There's a lot of great commentary happening on social media by our listeners now, and I want to keep it going. I mean, please seek us out on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at TF7 Radio, where you can actively engage it with other listeners and TF7 guests and myself and we get getting some intelligence dialogues about the topics that we discuss on the show. And things are really picking up. And I I really like what I see because it's overwhelmingly positive. Uh, in, in response to a, a post that I made on LinkedIn advertising last week's show, which was a very popular show in TF7 radio history, <laughs> being the two months that we've been on. Now, you know, we're just a couple months into it. I said this. I said... If you want to learn about how the shortage of women in the cybersecurity industry is fueling the largest talent crisis in the world, then tune in to the latest episode of Task Force 7 Radio to hear Dr. Magda Shelley give her take on the crisis and what we need to do about it. So we had some good conversation. Mr. Claude Williams responded to the post by saying this, I don't disagree with that statement on the whole. However, we also need need skilled people in tech. So as much as I agree with that diversity in any field is important, diversity at the expense of competence would be horrendous. So I believe we need more skilled women in tech. I feel no one wants to mention that crucial aspect of this issue. I want diversity, but I also want equal standards and equal opportunities for everyone in the field. And that prompted a response from Mr. J. Tate. And he responded by saying, I know from the top of the U.S. government to the leadership at Fortune, 100 men who have not a clue what they are doing with regard to cybersecurity. That's the Fortune 100 men have not a clue what they are doing with regard to cybersecurity. I wanna say I understand your comment, but the undertones I'm smelling are completely off base. We need qualified people in the positions they represent. What's funny is the white male dominates the representation of this industry, so I hope before you point your finger at a race or color or gender, you look inside first. I've been in the cyber for 17 years, all aspects, public, private, foreign, domestic, and when I look, I come across someone who knows their stuff, I'm blind to everything else. Some of the most effective cyber operators in the field are women. As a man of color, I can say there have been times I know I made more money than they did, but I did say anything at the time, no, dash, I was happy to be black in my position. So peacefully let Magda Shelley have her time. Let's not discuss double standards. I've got pages on that topic. And Mr. J. Tate goes on to say that he does not believe in divides, race, color, or creed, or synthetic divides that have caused enough drama, but under representation of one of these attributes deserves a voice to be heard. My megaphone is tied to my heart, and that's where I speak from. And having a very intelligent conversation, Mr. Williams responded back that he didn't disagree and that there are many people in positions that don't deserve or are unqualified for. He went on to say that there have been cases where qualified individuals have been turned away in favor of less qualified individuals for the sake of diversity. And even if two applicants are equally qualified, one should not be chosen simply because of their demographic. I fully support the message here but I believe it's equally important to maintain standards while we push forward with as much progress as possible. I'm not at all trying to say that any demographic is inherently more or less qualified than any other. But people get very excited when it comes to making progress against discrimination and hate. They may be willing to overlook underqualification as long as they feel like they are making a difference. While these cases may be a little consequence on their own, it can lead to problems where enacted on a larger scale. Let's say you have a team of 30 people. Your diversity quota calls for half men and half women. Even if you only turn away five fully qualified men in favor of five women who are less qualified, the effects can be devastating. If you turn down five fully qualified women for five less qualified men, the effects can be just as bad. He went on to say that, he's just saying that while we take steps forward, let's not take steps back. Mr. Tate Responded by thanking him for the clarity in the message and Saying sometimes those tones can strike a nerve in people like me who have had to fight and claw and outperform those around me because of my color Or whatever attribute causes discrimination, but I clearly see your point So we can arrest our swords and say ash peace or whatever works Bravo to the woman in tech diversity in tech and let's help build this new army together. And Mr. Williams chimed in and and agreed. And it's just great to see this show sparking intelligent, civilized, articulate discussions between people from different backgrounds who wanna come together to solve the problems we all face in a space we're all very passionate about. When it's a breath of fresh air to me, it's exciting to me, and this is really what the show is all about. And yet, there are some people out there who just refuse to accept the current situation. Also, in response to my post about the show, Mr. Harlan Carver responded this way, what talent crisis? Question mark. (laughs) That was it, what talent crisis? What are you talking about? There's no talent crisis. When another LinkedIn user suggested that maybe the headline might have been a marketing ploy, Mr. Carver opined further, agreed. Create an issue where there may not be one, or make it sound worse than it is. (laughs) Well, look, I'm sorry to inform you, Mr. Carver. We don't invent issues here at Task Force 7 Radio, and we don't make things sound worse than they are just for headlines or to acquire an audience. We're not in the scare business, sir. We're in the cybersecurity business. This isn't some podcast being broadcast out of a basement of a home with two guys dressed up in Star Wars costumes at the mic. I mean, come on. This is a tier one show. It's being produced by the first, largest, and most respected internet talk radio producer in the world at Voice America. And we pride ourselves at Task Force 7 as having the deepest relationships with the best information. So I stand by my statement that females are extremely underrepresented in the cybersecurity space. At levels of only 11% of the cybersecurity workforce and this is undoubtedly a major contributor to the talent crisis we are seeing across the globe so i recommend you educate yourself on the topic sir before spouting out statements that were in the business of manufacturing the facts just for ratings we got to take a break we'll have more about the crazy revelations around the uber breach an update on the cutter crisis the hbo hack And what's going on over there at Kaspersky after these short messages? You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity.
0: Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. In your business, are
2: you on top of your PR game? PR is what tells your story. Whether it's the business itself, key people in your business, or showing your best face to the public, listen for the brand ambassadors. Host Merritt Hamilton Allen with co-host Gary Potterfield will discuss effective presentation ideas, building your personal brand, risk management, crisis communication, and more focus your business goals and PR resources. Listen live Fridays at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Business.
0: Today, enterprise technology
1: is both strategic and global
2: Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at VoiceAmericaTRN.
0: You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at TaskForce7Radio.com. Again, that's Task Force 7 with the number 7, Radio.com. Now,
1: back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7, the voice of cybersecurity. I, I want to continue the discussion that I started last week about the Uber breach. And last week we reported that Uber had recently disclosed that hackers had stolen 57 million driver and rider accounts that the company had kept secret from Uber customers for more than a year after paying the bad guys $100,000 ransom hush money to delete the data and not disclose their crimes against Uber and their customers. And one would assume not to victimize Uber or their customers any further either. Just an assumption. So now the Times reported that the deal was arranged by the company's chief security officer and under the watch of the former chief executive, Travis Kalanick, according to several current and former employees who spoke on the condition of anonymity because of the details were sensitive and private. So the security officer, Joe Sullivan, has been fired from the company, and Mr. Kalanick was forced out in June, as we reported last week, although he remains on Uber's board. Now, last week I did disclose to you that I do know... Mr. Joe Sullivan, albeit albeit not not very well, but I did disclose to you that we've served on some panels together, and we've had had a few conversations, and and that's pretty much to the extent of our relationship, but I do know him, and I do know that he has a very good reputation in the cybersecurity community. I know him to be a very intelligent individual myself when, when I met of him, and he is very well respected. He is very well thought of professionally in our space. So, I'm going to give you my views on on what has been made public about the Uber situation, but I also want to remind my listeners, and I've said this since the beginning, since the pilot episode, that a lot goes on in the background with these situations that doesn't initially get reported in the news media, and sometimes never does. And I don't want to be in the business of playing Monday morning quarterback against every CISO or CSO in the industry that has a bad day, because everyone's going to have a bad day. Everybody. It's just the nature of the business. And and playing Monday morning quarterback and, and throwing grenade grenades over the wall, I mean, it's just it's not the way I roll. But, you know, Joe Sullivan deserves the right to speak on his own behalf. And I, and I don't think he'll get to do that any chance anytime soon or have the chance to do that in in the coming weeks because of all the impending federal investigations and lawsuits that are lining up at Uber's doorsteps. So Unfortunately, I don't think we'll be able to hear from him anytime soon. But having said that, if I see something that doesn't look right, and unfortunately I do see plenty that doesn't look right in this situation, I'm going to give you my opinion about it. But let's not lose sight of the fact that we're not going to go around indicting you know, people in the media here. It's not, this is not, let's not be part of the swirl that indicts professionals have long storied careers in the cybersecurity space before we get all the facts So last week, I left off after talking about what had allegedly been taken by the hackers in in, in the highly unusual situation situation with Uber asking the hackers to sign NDAs about this $100,000 hush money payment. I also spoke about the numerous investigations launched by several attorney general's offices. The FTC launched an investigation. And there's also a bunch of class action civil suits in several states. I mean, what a mess. What a mess. One of the topics I started talking about was grayballing and how Uber was using it to dominate its target market. We call it their, their grayball tool. And the program involving a tool like this uses data collected from the Uber app and other techniques to identify and circumvent officials who are trying to clamp down on the ride-hailing service. So Uber, here's the background, Uber used these methods to evade authorities in cities like Boston and Vegas reported last week and other countries too. And Grayball was part of a program called VTOS. In short, that's the violation of terms of service, which Uber created to root out people with thought were using or targeting its service improperly. The program, including Grayball, the VTOS program, began as early as 2014 and remains in use, predominantly outside the United States. So Grayball was approved by Uber's legal team, according to the New York Times. This all from the New York Times. Now, this, unfortunately, does not seem to be unusual Uber behavior. Uber has long flouted laws and regulations to gain an edge against entrenched transportation providers, a modus operandi that has helped propel it into more than 70 countries and into a valuation close to $70 yet using it at using its app to identify and sidestep the authorities where regulators said uber was breaking the law goes further towards skirting ethical lines and potentially legal ones too so some at uber who knew of the vtos program and how the gray ball tool was being used were very troubled by it and some employees were clearly uncomfortable with whatever god knows what was going on over there i mean obviously there was some discomfort right Now, what's what's next is very telling. This is where I I really have some trouble understanding what, what they're thinking. In a statement, Uber said this. This program denies ride requests to users who are violating our terms of service, whether that's people aiming to physically harm drivers, competitors looking to disrupt our operations, or get this, opponents who collude with officials on secret stings. Meant to entrap drivers. What? What does that mean? (laughs) So law enforcement, uh, apparently law enforcement officials are, 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 are not conducting criminal investigations or violations of other laws. They're colluding with Uber's competitors now, according to Uber. That's what they said. Opponents who collude with officials on secret stings meant to entrap drivers. They actually said that. When's the last time a law enforcement official was charged with entrapment against an Uber employee? I mean, this sounds so ridiculous, I don't believe Uber had the courage to release this statement. The mayor of Portland, Ted Wheeler, for his part, had his own public statement. And I quote, I'm very concerned that Uber may have purposely worked to thwart the city's job to protect the public. I mean, yeah, that seems more likely a more likely statement to ring true at this point. To me, anyway. I mean Uber's Grey Ball Tool was developed to weed out riders thought to be using its service improperly. This is where the VTOS program and the use of the Grey Ball tool came in. When Uber moved into a new city, it appointed a general manager to lead the charge. This person used various technologies and techniques and would try to spot enforcement officers. I mean, I don't know about you, but any organization that employs a counter-surveillance operation specifically aimed at law enforcement officials sounds more like an organized crime operation than a legitimate business entity in the United States to me. I mean, when's the last time your business set up a counter-surveillance operation against law enforcement? Yeah. One technique involved in drawing a digital perimeter or geofence around the government offices on a digital map of the city Uber was monitoring. The company watched which people were frequently opening and closing the app in a process known internally as eyeballing near such locations as evidence that the users might be associated with city agencies. I'm just trying to see who's using the app. It might be a, a law enforcement official. It might be a cop. Other techniques included... Looking at the user's credit card information and determining whether the card was tied directly to an institution like a police agency. Yeah, that's what they're doing with your data. Enforcement officials involved a large-scale sting operation meant to catch Uber drivers, which sometimes buy dozens of cell phones to create different accounts. To circumvent that tactic, Uber employees would go to local electronic stores to look up device numbers Of the cheapest mobile phones for sale, which were often the ones bought by city officials working with budgets that were not large. In all, there were at least a dozen or so signifiers or distinct data points, which we call them often. In the VTOS program that Uber employees could use to assess whether users were regularly new riders or probably city officials, law enforcement officials. If such clues did not confirm a user's identity, Uber employees would search social media profiles and other information available online. If users were identified as being linked to law enforcement, Uber grayballed them by tagging them with a small piece of code that read, grayball, followed by a string of numbers. I don't know, I mean, what does that sound like to you? I'll let you decide. sounds like a cyber counterintelligence operation to me. Aimed at law enforcement to specifically obstruct criminal investigations in in some jurisdictions. When someone tagged this way, called a car, Uber would scramble a set of ghost cars and a fake version of the app for that person to see or show that no cars were available. Either way, Occasionally, if a driver accidentally picked up someone tagged as an officer, Uber called the driver with instructions to immediately end the ride. Uber employees said the practices and tools were born in part out of safety measures meant to protect drivers in some countries. In France, India, and Kenya, for instance, taxi companies and workers targeted and attacked new Uber drivers. And there's a lot of truth to that, I understand. In those areas, gray bowling started as a way to scramble the locations of UberX drivers to prevent competitors from finding them. Uber said that it was still the tool's primary use. And this, of course, all this still according to the New York Times. But as Uber moved into new markets, engineers saw that the same methods can be used to evade law enforcement. Once the gray ball tool was put in place and tested, Uber engineers created a playbook with a list of tactics and distributed it to general managers in more than a dozen countries on five continents. At least 50 people on site Uber knew about Grayball, and some of them had qualms about whether it was ethical or even legal. I mean, no surprise there. It doesn't surprise me that people would have questions about this. But Grayball was allegedly approved by Uber's legal team, led by Sally Yu, the company's general counsel. And Ryan Graves, an early hire who became senior vice president of global operations and a board member, was also aware of the program, according to the New York Times. So Ms. Yu and Mr. Graves did not respond to a request for comment, no shocker there. So outside legal specialists said they were certain about the legality, or uncertain about the legality of the program. So people planning on the situation weren't really certain about if what they were doing was legal, and I guess it depends on the jurisdiction. So they said in the Times that Grayball could be considered a violation of the Federal Computer Fraud and Abuse Act or a possibly intentional obstruction of justice depending on local laws and jurisdictions. This said by Peter Henning, a law professor at Wayne State University who also writes for the New York Times. With any type of systematic thwarting of the law, you're flirting with disaster, Professor Henning said. We all take our foot off the gas when we see the police car at the intersection up ahead, and then there's nothing wrong with that. But this goes a step further. This goes far beyond being avoiding, uh, avoiding a speed trap. To date, great bowling has been effective because in Portland, on that day in late 2014, Mr. England, the law enforcement officer we mentioned in the, in the last episode, he didn't catch that Uber, according to local reports. But ironically, two weeks after Uber began dispatching drivers to Portland, the company reached an agreement with local officials that said that after a three-month suspension, Uber would eventually be legally available in the city which I don't, I don't understand why I go through all this effort for two weeks. Just wait two weeks and get it done legally. It doesn't make sense to me. So the other Uber employee who was fired alongside Mr. Sullivan was Craig Clark, the company's legal director of security and law enforcement. Neither Mr. Sullivan nor Mr. Clark responded to any quest for comment, which, you know, I mentioned before, I don't expect them to, and that's standard. I'm sure they want to tell their stories, and I, and I wish they could, um, But it's not the way things work, unfortunately, uh, when these situations happen. So the company's decision to conceal the breach and pay the ransom quickly raised questions among security experts. And many have repeatedly warned companies against paying hackers a ransom to cover up breaches or return stolen data, advice that was included in a 2016 statement from the FBI. And several states, including California, have laws mandating that companies disclose when they are breached by hackers, which we all know, that at least people who are in the business know this as as common knowledge. But I have a big problem with this, and I'm talking about the payment, the ransom. And here's why. You don't know where that money is going. You don't know where that money is being used for. I mean, look at the kind of people you're dealing with here. It is not at all uncommon for terrorists to collude with organized crime groups to facilitate terrorist funding operations. Check this out, straight out of fraudmagazine.com. Cyber crimes that facilitate credit card fraud, wire fraud, mortgage fraud, charitable donation fraud, insurance fraud, identity theft, money laundering, immigration fraud, and tax evasion are just some of the types of fraud commonly used to fund terrorist cells. Now keep in mind that much of the information stolen from the Uber breach can be used to commit these same types of crimes. So I quote, Part of the problem is that it takes so little to finance an operation, said Gary LaFree, director of the University of Maryland's National Consortium for the Study of Terrorism and Responses to Terrorism. For example, the 2005 London bombings cost only about $15,600. The 2,000 bombing of the USS Cole is estimated to have cost between $5,000 and $10,000. Al-Qaeda's entire 9-11 operation only cost between $400,000 and $500,000, according to the final report of the National Commission on Terrorist Attacks upon the United States. So you see what I'm getting at here? I mean, what if you were to learn that Uber paid criminals who stole your information... And who were colluding, and then find out that they were colluding with terrorists. And then the terrorists used that same payoff money that you gave to the criminals. was funding the terrorists to finance some terrorist operation that injured or killed people. How would you feel? Not too good, I don't think. Companies are funding organized crime in an industry of criminals is being created, said Kevin Beaumont, a cybersecurity expert based in Britain. The good guys are creating a market for the bad guys. We're enabling them to monetize what years ago would have been teenagers in bedrooms breaching companies for fun. Uber has experienced these breaches before, folks. They're not rookies to the, to the table, okay? They can't claim that, oh, you know, ignorance, we don't know how it works, all right? The company was hit with a data breach in May of 2014, an event Uber discovered later that year and disclosed in February 2015. And in that attack, the names and driver's licenses of more than 50,000 of the company's drivers were compromised. So they're not rookies to this kind of crisis. They know the deal. And this is a very, very, this is the side of the argument here of making payments to criminals. That is, it's just a really strong argument. And so I, I think Uber has some explaining to do. So this latest latest breach puts Uber in another difficult situation, just as the company is working to repair its battered image and preparing to seek an initial public offering in 2019. Mr. Khosrow Shahi has characterized his tenure at the company as <coughs> Uber 2.0. And as part of that, he's tossed out the aggressive corporate values that were prized by Mr. Kalanick and given the ride-hailing service a new list of values that includes doing the right thing, Period. Let's hope uh, someone's doing the right thing over there. I mean, straighten that place out. It just doesn't sound right. I mean, we've got to hear the other side of the story. I get it. But, man, this doesn't sound right. Uber has hired Matt Olson, former general counsel at at the National Security Agency, as an advisor, and has retained Mandiant, a security firm, to conduct an independent investigation of the security breach. Uber and Mr. Olson plan to reorganize the company's security team. But it seems to, to me that the damage has been done, and Uber officials are aware of the long road back to, stand, back to good standing with the public. So while it's not illegal to pay money to hackers, this according to the Times, Uber may have violated several laws in its interaction with them. I don't know about that. I don't know if it was legal to pay those hackers or not. I'm not sure about that. Maybe we get a lawyer on the of to opine on that. So by demanding that the hackers destroy the stolen data, Uber may have violated a Federal Trade Commission rule on the breach disclosure that prohibits companies from destroying any forensic evidence in the course of their investigation. That's interesting. The company may have also violated state breach disclosure laws by not disclosing the theft of Uber driver's stolen data. If the data stolen was not encrypted, Uber would have been required by California California state law to disclose that driver's license data from its drivers had been stolen in the course of the hacking. It would also seem to me, on top of the cybersecurity breach and paying criminals and hiding this from customers, that Uber's using the data they aggregate and retain from their business model to surveil people. I mean, whomever that may be. Their competitors the police, law enforcement officials. I mean, surveilling law enforcement to obstruct investigations. I mean, and who knows what else they're doing with your data? Who else are they targeting? So Uber potentially retains a great deal of information about an individual's location, their specific movements, their general habits that could reveal a great deal about that individual's life. I mean, so so what's next? You target politicians, uh, political enemies perhaps, famous people, celebrities they may be obsessed with, maybe someone the CEO just doesn't like, who knows? Point is, Uber's getting hacked, they're losing your sensitive data, they're paying off the criminals to keep quiet and not use your data against you, hopefully, who knows what kind of deal that looks like, I mean, it sounds just as good as the Irene deal. Signing legal agreements with criminals not to tell anyone how they victimized you and your privacy. They're surveilling law enforcement officials, possibly interfering, obstructing investigations, obstructing justice. Possibly. They're being investigated by federal authorities for numerous numerous criminal violations, not just this. If you look into it, 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 there's there's several investigations going on. They're purposely making painstaking efforts to keep information from you that could help you protect your identity from cyber criminals who intend on doing harm to you and your family. And to be honest, I don't even think I've even scratched the surface here on what's really going on over there. I mean, do you want to take an Uber car right now? Ask yourself that question. Are you kidding me? The Times wrapped up the story by noting that an Uber spokesman declined to comment. Well, somebody better start saying something over there that sounds like Uber has a, 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 some type of ethical compass. I, I don't know. We'll be right back with an update on the Cutter Crisis and more after this. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity.
0: Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
2: Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy. With co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Class, Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at T R N.
0: You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at TaskForce7Radio.com Again, that's Task Force 7 with the number 7 Radio.com Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis.
1: Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I want to start off this last segment by talking a little bit about the diplomatic crisis in the Middle East that we reported on a few weeks ago that started off with a cyber attack on Qatar's National News Agency. So the bickering continues over there with Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Egypt all refusing to ease the toughen economic sanctions against Qatar that were implemented after a compromise of the QA that allowed a hacker to release fake news detailing comments from their ruler that they were supportive of Iran and critical of the United States and Saudi Arabia, which was, of course, all not true. The Arab Quartet severed diplomatic and transport links with Qatar in June, accusing it of its backing extremist groups, a charge that Doha has repeatedly and emphatically denied. The events over the last several weeks don't seem to be in, indic- indicative that the crisis is going to end anytime soon. So according to Bloomberg, Qatar's sheik, Tamim bin Hamad al Thani said his country will carry on, with its economic and foreign policies, not budging one bit to its big brother in Saudi Arabia. In fact, accusing the Saudi-led alliance of seeking to prolong the worst diplomatic crisis in the history of the Gulf Cooperation Council, otherwise known as the GCC. So let me tell you something. I've been watching this very closely. and I've been watching this guy and studying this guy. He ain't backing down. The sheik, no way. He ain't backing down. I mean, I could see it in his eyes. I can see the defiance in his eyes. You can hear it in his voice when he speaks. Your hack ain't gonna make me look like a fool. That's pretty much what his his stance is. I got piles of cash and I don't need your land routes. You got static, bring it. This is real troubling. Repeated attempts at mediation by Kuwait, the US, France, and some other influential countries have all failed miserably since the cyber attack set off a series of very serious, very serious events that, by some accounts, almost amounted, amounted to military action. So, Qatar's defiant ruler, delivering an annual speech before the National Assembly known as the Shura Council, said the Saudi led coalition doesn't want to reach a solution to the dispute. He then says that I don't need to remind you the number of countries thriving only on sea and air transport without land crossings, the emir told a packed audience of Qatari government officials. Quote, Qatar's society knows how to live, thrive, and develop on whether the blockade was long or short. In other words, we're filthy rich. And if I have to keep flying a thousand cows a month over here on some planes from the United States, just like the ones that were shown on 60 Minutes, the 60 Minutes episode a few weeks ago, I'll just keep writing checks, because after all, there's a lot more where that came from. So now you look at a map of the Middle East, and you got to say to yourself, man, this guy, he's got some balls. I mean, he doesn't exactly own the high ground here. And you got to wonder why he's so defiant considering his position. But remember, not that the United States has pledged to back Qatar in any military conflict with other U.S. allies or anything like that. In fact, they're downplaying everything, and I'm sure the answer is no to any military conflict in the United States, right? Obviously. But the U.S. does have its largest air force base in the Middle East, in the Qatari Desert. I mean, there's a huge relationship there that can't be ignored. So if if, if you are Saudi Arabia, how do you attack a country that is hosting an enormous military operation of one of your most important allies in the United States? But wait, it gets even more complicated. According to Geo.TV, another important strategic U.S. ally, Turkey, is throwing its weight behind Qatar. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan pledged his country's continued military support for Qatar during a visit to Doha recently, according to state state media, this all amid the ongoing political crisis in the Gulf. It's reported that Turkey now now has around 3,000 troops at its military base in Qatar, and they are ready to defend Qatar against any military attacks. This is really a big deal, I mean, Turkey's a major U.S. ally in the Middle East and is a member of NATO. So for his part, Erdogan stressed that Turkey's support to the state of Qatar, especially in the, in the military, will continue. And he made a point to visit the Turkish military base in Qatar with senior Qatari officials, including the Qatari defense minister. There's been nothing more about the cyber attack on Qatar that started this whole thing, other than reports that it reiterate that Qatar is continuing its investigation into the incident. But for now, for all intents and purposes, the Gulf Cooperation Council, or the GCC, is defunct. I mean, it's completely ineffective and the Arab Quartet seems determined to redefine what this political and economic intergovernmental organization looks like moving forward into the future. So we're gonna keep an eye on this diplomatic crisis in the Middle East, and most of all, we're still here to find out what the disposition is of the investigation into that cyber attack that started the whole thing. So moving on, Wired, Wired.com, I was reporting that four months ago, HBO faced a punishing series of leaks on unreleased episodes, scripts, and even celebrities' contact information and a couple of weeks ago, on a Tuesday, the Department of Justice named the alleged culprit behind the extortion campaign. It's an Iranian hacker named Bazad Mezri. By indicting Mezri, prosecutors have sent a message that even anonymous cyber criminals in countries as distant as, I, as Iran can be tracked down and unmasked. So the, the more muted part of the message is stay in Iran and you'll probably never face a U.S. trial. You got to stay there, though. The justice department's indictment charges 39-year-old Mesery, also known as Scott Vashot or Mr. Smith to his victims, with a computer fraud, wire fraud, identity theft, and the rarer charge of using a computer for extortion indictment. So the indictment describes how Mesery stole HBO's data totaling no less than 1.5 terabytes Demanding $6 million in Bitcoin from HBO and releasing a series of damaging data dumps to coerce the company to pay. Those dumps included draft scripts for unaired episodes of Game of Thrones, full unaired episodes of shows, including Ballers. <laughs> That's one of my favorite shows. I mean, that show rocks. Love Ballers. Awesome. Curb Your Enthusiasm and the Deuce as well as emails, contracts, and even cast and crew contact lists that included actors' personal cell phone numbers. So Mesery allegedly organized his hacking scheme from halfway around the world in Iran. Southern District of New York uh, District Attorney June Kim told reporters at a Tuesday press conference a couple weeks ago, he now stands charged with federal crimes, and although not arrested today, he will forever have to look over his shoulder until he is made to face justice. I kind of like that. Of course, the United States has no extradition treaty, and they know that they're not going to be able to arrest this guy. But instead, they decided to make the indictment public. And, quote, we weighed that against sending a message. (laughs) Now, the New York Southern District Attorney is is funny in the way he says things. I mean, this is the second time he's he's quoted us, you know, sending a message. And I can only think of, you know, Joey Zaza is going to send me a message back. Joey Zaza is going to send me a message. (laughs) I mean... If, if, you're, if, you're not, if you're a millennial, you probably don't know what I'm talking about. But if you're my age, you probably know a little bit of what I'm talking about in terms of remembering Vincent Mancini. Great scene. But look, my production manager is telling me I'm out of time. Um, i, I got to go. And I, I'm going to talk about the Kaspersky thing next week. I'll finish up on the Iranian thing with HBO as well. I'll cover it next week. We'll jump back into it. But in the meantime, don't forget to visit the Cybersecurity Hub. Just catch a recap of tonight's show and other cybersecurity breaking news at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity.
0: Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.